one of the things that John is very intentional in doing is presenting the significance of Jesus' miracles. But it's interesting that he never uses the word miracle. Miracle is used in, in the synoptics, but not in John. John uses either signs or works. And it's interesting, John is so intentional in how he teaches in the words that he uses. Because signs signify something greater. The signs are not the end in and of themselves. What Jesus does, the point is not that he heals a blind man. It's amazing. But it's pointing to something greater. And John and Jesus both use works often. We're going to dig into that quite a bit because everything Jesus does is in accordance with the work of the Father, the work that the Father sent him here to do. And this morning is a great example of one of those signs which Jesus calls a work. He's going to give sight to a man born blind. And as this man himself will say, never in history has anyone ever born blind received their sight. As we read earlier in Psalm 146, one of the marks of, the, of our God, the God who created heavens and earth, is that he can give sight to the blind. No God can claim that but our God. Also, there's an interesting text that when uh, Moses is scared to go before Pharaoh and he's worried about his own abilities and he says, I don't have a voice, I stammer in my speech. Look at what God says to him. It'll be on the screen. Exodus 4.11. Exodus 4.11 says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who has made man's eyes? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? When Moses is scared about his own ability to, to, to speak, God reminds him who made mouths, who made eyes, who gives us the ability to even see or speak. And we have to remember that to give us sight in the first place, which many of us take for granted, or to restore sight or to give sight for the first time, it comes from God. This is a divine power. But this is also a messianic fulfillment and a great measure of who the anointed of God would be. Now, if you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah is the first major prophet. If you don't know where Isaiah is, turn to the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms. Go a couple books to the right. Isaiah 42 is the, the servant of the Lord passage. There's some amazing details in here that tell us who Christ is and we'll see them fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. I'm actually going to read a pretty big section and I want to draw a couple of things to your attention. And many of you have commented to me that you find the Old Testament difficult to read. In some instances it is. It's part of the reason why we're going to go through Deuteronomy. Uh, but Isaiah in particular, if you study the person and work of Christ, Isaiah is looking forward to it and proclaiming who Jesus would be 700 years before Jesus ever walked on the earth. Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant, now remember, this is a servant of the Lord, speaking of a person here, whom I uphold, upheld by the hand of God, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He wasn't John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. He also didn't cry aloud when they beat him. He didn't lift up his voice when they put him before Pilate. Or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I Meaning he is merciful uh, to those who are, are, are broken, and he encourages those who need some encouragement. I, I'd love to break that down more, but I won't. Uh, he, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. He will not finished until his work is complete, and the coastlands wait for his law. The very creation longs for the word of God, the law, 
of the servant of God. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Nothing is outside of his power. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Still speaking about the servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Last week when we took of the Lord's table, we were reminded of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Every covenant of God was initiated by God and completed by God. I will give you a person as a covenant for the peoples. No one could ever bear that claim except the anointed one, the Messiah. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind physically and spiritually. We're going to get to that this morning to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon physically and spiritually from the prison. Those who sit in darkness, these spiritual parallels that that are so rich that Jesus is drawing upon when he says, I am the light of the world. And he's opposing the Pharisees who are sons of their father, the Lord of darkness. The power of the Messiah is to be a light to the nations, to pull those out of darkness who are in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. God himself is speaking of a person in which his soul delights who will be a covenant for the peoples, who will be a light for the nations, who will share the very aspects of God. And he says, my glory I give to no other. We're going to read from John 17, where Jesus famously, and throughout the Gospel of John, talks about the glory that he has with the Father from before the world began. My glory I give to no other. Our God is worthy of all glory and praise, Father and Son. And Holy Spirit, thank you, brother. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them of you. The former things, this is Isaiah seeing into the future. The former things, meaning the ceremonial and civil way that God interacted with his people. There's something new that's coming. New creation is going to be initiated through the Messiah. And Isaiah is telling of them before they come. This Messiah who will be marked by those things will usher in the new creation that will one day be culminated at his second return. But in his first return, he's going to do things like restore sight to the blind, heal the lame, proclaim liberty to the captives. Every time... A spiritually blind person sees we are seeing the work of new creation. We are seeing the new heavens and new earth coming one step closer. And Isaiah saw it veiled in a prophecy 2,700 years ago. Those with eyes to see, we see it clearly in God's word and we should marvel in it. So we see that the restoring of sight is an act of God and a mark of the Messiah. Even in the best optometrist we have today cannot give sight where there was none. We can correct cataracts, we can improve poor sight, but we cannot give sight if there isn't any. And many of us, we we don't think about how much we rely on our sight. We don't think every day we take for granted that yes, I'm taking in what's in front of me. I see trees, I see shapes, I see colors, I see light, I see dark. And we just assume that that's how it should always be. None of us are blind in here. You ever considered the blind person? This blind man in our story, as we walk through our text today, I want you to consider his perspective from this. Think about a man who has never seen. His entire world is sounds and smells. Probably not much touch because he would have been ostracized. And he's going to hear the voice of the one who can open the eyes of the blind. I want you to think about, does the blind person ever really know what they're missing? Does someone who's never seen, could they understand what it's like to see a sunset, see the stars, or to look upon the face of another person? 
Can they understand colors and shapes and depth? We're also going to look at the parallels to spiritual blindness this morning. Does the spiritually blind person know what they're missing? Do they know what true beauty is? I would argue no. If you have not seen a sunset praising the God who created the sun, you have never seen a sunset. Let's look at our text this morning in John chapter 9. Coming off the heels of last week, where Jesus is confronting the Jews, calling them sons of their father, the devil, calling them liars, children of Satan. And they get ready to stone him. Jesus removes himself from their midst. Here's where we find ourselves now. There's a lot of debate of how much time has passed between 8 and 9, chapter 8 and chapter 9. I, I don't think there is much. It may even be a continuous narrative. And we're going to work on that assumption either way. It doesn't make a, a whole lot of difference for our text. Starting in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not this man. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of God, works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, maker of heaven and earth, glorious, wonderful, awesome, potentate of time, ineffably sublime, creator of the rolling spheres. All of the richness that the English language can put together can't scratch the surface of who you are. And in your providence, you knew us. You knew our sin, blind and begging, scratching around in the darkness without you. But you sent your son for us to open our eyes, to free us from the bondage of sin, to release us from our captivity of our own making. That you might be glorified. This morning, let your spirit teach us. Go before me. Let the words that I am to speak be glorifying and honoring to you. May it, may it apply conviction where conviction is needed. May it imply, apply encouragement where encouragement is needed. May your word accomplish its purpose. As you continue to give sight to the blind, And restore the weakness of our sight when we doubt the God who created everything and performs miracles. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So starting in verse 1. As he passed by, 
he saw a man. Now, when you come out of the temple, we've talked about this a little bit. The temples where everyone went, the temples where people went to feel religious. There were plenty of people who were asking for money. There were plenty of people who were begging. There were plenty of people who were just looking for a couple of coins so they could eat that day. It is never recorded that Jesus healed everyone that he saw. This kind of shakes people's world up a little bit. Every time Jesus sets his eyes on someone, it is with a purpose. This word that is used in in the Greek is to, to look upon, to see, not just to gaze with the eyes, but to know, to behold. When Jesus sees this man, he knows his predicament. And the man, and John gives us the detail here that he was blind from birth. And I'm sure Jesus knew that. Let's think about this blind man for a moment before we move on. Darkness is all he's ever known. No colors, no beauties. Like we said earlier, his entire world is probably smells and sounds. And he's used to the hustling and bustling of people going forward and used to people talking about him like he's not even there. Sitting day after day, hoping for a couple crumbs so he can eat. And I want us to think about as we walk through, think about this blind man, but also think about life like without Christ. It's very much like that. You may feel like you can see, you may feel like you are living, but without Christ, it is utter darkness. Just sounds and smells, maybe the occasional touch, but no real sight. There's going to be a lot of those those parallels. And and think about this duality here of every sign that Jesus did is looking toward a physical reality of what's happening right in front of him. But also a greater spiritual reality, the ultimate truth of what life without Christ is like. So the the, the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they had a biblical basis for this. There are biblical texts that will say the son, the sins of the father will be attributed to the son. There are also texts that say the the, the children will be responsible for their own sins. So they had a good theological ground for asking this question. And there is even a lot of debate among Jews at the time that because they attributed um, infirmities to sin, they, they tried to trace the sin back. Well, what did the parents do? Or did this child actually sin within the womb so that they could be born th- this way? This is actually a debate that goes on. And so what happens very often when people get in surface level theological debates, Jesus takes them to deeper spiritual realities. And so here's the disciples here trying to figure out theologically what happened here. Jesus always has something greater in mind. He goes on. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, don't look for a direct cause of sin in this man. It was not him. It was not his parents. And Jesus could have made the case that this is a result of his original parents. that The sin of Adam and Eve is attributed to him. But he doesn't. But it is something important for us to remember. That while not every infirmity or every disability is attributed to a direct sin, every infirmity and every disability is a reminder of sin. Without the curse of sin on the world, there would be no blindness. There would be no lame. There would be no sickness. And every time we look around and see someone that is blind, that is hurting, that is lame, or things are not as they should be. It should be a reminder to us that things are not right. No one looks around and say everything is right with the world, all puns intended. No one says, yeah, everything as is as they should be. And for us, that is such a great gospel entry. 
Because anytime anyone is worried or confused about the state of things, how could this happen? We can tell them about sin and the effect that it has on everything. You can tell them the answer and the solution to sin. As this man will find out in just a moment. It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I want to stop here and talk about works of God for just a second. I mentioned that earlier that works is used often by John and Jesus more than in any other gospel. And the works that God has always done in the lives of his people, Jesus continues to do. Nothing has changed. The works of God are still acting on the people of this earth. Let me rephrase that. Something has changed. It is amplified. It is intensified. Now that God walks on earth, the parting of the Red Sea, the, uh, the uh, plagues, uh, you go on and on, the uh, chariots that surround Elijah and Elisha, the works of God we see splattered throughout Old Testament history. But now when Emmanuel, God takes on flesh, work, walks on the earth, The works of God are on full display. And we see that here. And that is Jesus' whole purpose for coming to earth, is to do the works of God. It was not an accident. It was not a plan B. And he's here to show the glory of God. And to us, it is miraculous. But to Jesus, it is just what he does. It is just who he is. He says as much in John chapter 17, uh, verse 4. I can tell you now, for the rest of John, we're going to be flipping back and forth to John chapter 17. And if it was up to me, we might spend like 10 weeks on John 17. But in verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. If you're not familiar with John 17, it's this great high priestly prayer of our high priest on earth, praying to the Father before he's about to be delivered up to the Romans. I have accomplished all the work that you've sent me here to do in complete agreement. My time is drawing near. And the phrase that we associate with Jesus on the cross in John 19.30 that says, it is finished. It's the only place in scripture where that is recorded. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It is finished. Still speaking of the work of Christ. It is finished. The final work that is required for all other good works would be done on the cross. The culmination of the work of the Son in agreement with the Father in perfect glory. It is finished on the cross. Everything leads up to that. That is the climax of history. The last work he would do his physical body would be to die on the cross. He would be raised up in a glorified body to conquer death and the grave. Jesus could say it is finished on the cross because he's talking about our sin. Everyone who would ever trust in him, our sins would be nailed to that cross. And he knew it is finished because he knew he would rise again. And we think about the work of the Son, the works of God. There is none greater. There is none higher. But we're not there yet. And until we get there, we're going to see the works of Christ leading up to that. Works of restoration, works of new creation. The same God who created heaven and earth recreates lives by breathing life into them, by giving them sight. And it is just incredible. And the works of God are on display in this man. Jesus chooses him to make an example, to teach the disciples and still teach us 2,000 years later. And in all of it, fulfilling prophecy perfectly. Isaiah 42, Psalm 146. Let's go on. We 
must work the works of him who sent me. I got to stop again. This is the first time we're hearing this. We. Up until this point, it has been I. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. If you come to me, you will never thirst. If you come to me, you will never hunger. Everything is him against the Jews. For the first time, he says, we must do the works of him who sent me. Many times we can just read over details like this. Now the disciples are brought in. I was sent here to do the work of God. Many of you may not know this, but the word apostles, it means sent ones. The apostles were sent from Christ. We must do the works. If you're united with me, if you trust in me, you will do the works that I have done. You will do the works of my father. We must. This is not a suggestion. This is an imperative. We must do the works of him who sent me. Just as, just as Jesus is compelled by the father, so are his disciples. And if you trust him and if you follow him, you are his disciple. We must be about our father's business. We must do the works that we are called to do. This is what followers of Christ are called to do. Not just good deeds, not just moralism for the sake of doing good things to pat ourselves on the back. But doing them because Christ did them, because God the Father commands it. That he get glory, that he get honor. Works that please God according to the will of God. Out of the finished work of Christ. This is why his sinless life, his death and resurrection are so important. Because if he did not finish his work, if his work was not accomplished, we have no basis on which to stand. There is no basis for good works if we are still burdened with our own sin. That is why James can say, without works, faith is dead. Because if you say you believe in the Jesus that the Bible declares, but you have no concern to do what the Bible tells you, then what is the point? How can we believe God's word about Christ, but ignore its commands? And when do we do these works? Jesus goes on to tell us. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. What's, what's he talking about here? Day. As the children of light, for us, it is always day. Because Christ is the light of the world. We are the light of the world because of him. And it is always day as long as we are on earth. It is always time to do the work of the Father. The works of God do not take a day off. They do not take a night off. Now, we don't want to get this confused with the, the, the symbolism as of, of light and dark, good and evil. For the believer, it is always day. But look at what Jesus says here to help us understand it. Night is coming when no one can work. No one can work at night. Jesus is talking about life and death here. When night comes, at the end of our days, we cannot work. So what is Jesus telling us? There's urgency here. Just like it is day now and we know night will soon come, for all of us, we know death will soon come. We know that our days on this earth are numbered. Death is when no one can work. Pretty obvious. You know, advertisers love to tell us that life is short. Live for yourself. Do what you want to do. But Jesus is telling us life is short. Do the works that I do because they lead to Eternal treasure. They will bring glory to God in heaven and he will exalt you. Or use your time here on earth to do what exalts yourself. These these are strong words from Jesus. Work now while it is day. The Bible always speaks of urgent language. Be sober-minded, be awake, be watchful. Those virgins that fell asleep with, without oil in their lamps, they missed the master's coming. 
Jesus never lets up, and neither does the rest of the New Testament. As long as I am in the world, he goes on to say, I am the light of the world. Now, I believe this is still in the context of the Feast of the Booths. Now, feels like we covered that several months ago because we probably did. Uh, but think about the, the symbolism that we talked about. During that ceremony, there were 75-foot candles that were ablaze so that the worship could go 24 hours a day. And it's probably a big uh, process to tear those things down. And so as he walks out of the temple, uh, John gives us a lot of time markers. We don't see that any time has passed here. So he's walking out of the temple. These giant pillars that were, that were blazing that he points to, he says, you're looking at these candles that are supposed to show God's light to the world. And he's saying, I am the light of the world standing in the midst of them. But here he is a day after, maybe a couple of days after. And he says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. These smoldering candles are put out. Where there once was light, there is now darkness. And he's about to see a man who has never seen light. The symbolism here is rich. This is not meant to be, and I know we want to spend time here, but it's not meant to be four weeks removed from him saying, I am the light of the world. This is still in the same context. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, this is a really interesting, if, if you're paying attention, if you're a detailed person like I am, it's an interesting phrasing here. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So does that mean Jesus is saying he ever stops being the light of the world? Does the light ever stop giving light? But if you're students of your Bibles, you will know, if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, that he calls us the light of the world. So what does that mean for us? And uh, Matthew, or excuse me, Jesus in Matthew here is going to help us. Matthew chapter 5 is going to read 14 through 16. Jesus says, I am the light of the world as long as I'm in it. So how do we, how do we rectify that with what he says in Matthew chapter 5? Matthew 5, 14 says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nowhere do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. It's the same parallel here. As long as it's day, do the works of the Father. So what does he mean with this whole light thing? Jesus is the light of the world as long as he's on it. But when he ascends and goes back to the Father, he sends his spirit and we become his light. He is still the light of the world through us. He is its light while, he's, while he was here. And he is still the ruler of all things. Don't... don't don't hear me say that. But we become his light. Not to hide it under a bushel and wait for him to return, but give light to all in the house. In the same way, look at verse 15. Let your light shine before others, or 16, so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Draws all this together. Why do we shine? Why are we the light of Christ? So that our good works after the Father give him glory. In a special way that no one and nothing else can. Jesus in Acts 1 tells them, you are going to be my representatives. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. And I'm going to get, you're going to see greater things than even you saw in me. This is just amazing to think about how God works this out. He sends Christ who is the light of the world. And he gives that light to us so that we can bear light to all of them and do good works. And he still gets the glory. It's beautiful. Man, I'm on the first page of my notes. All right. There's another verse that uh, I'd like you all to commit to memory. One of my favorite verses. It talks about this, this, um, this working out in the life of the believer. How is it that he's the light of the world and yet we're the light of the world? Galatians 2.20, it's going to be up on the screen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we trust in Christ and know that he gave himself for us, 
And we have been crucified with him at the same time. He is the light of the world and we are the light of the world. He lives in us as we live. And even though it is really us living, it is not really us living. It is in his strength. Think on that, your mind will explode. And it should. By faith, we are sons of the living God, unified with Christ in his identity and his purpose. The works of God are always a triumph of light over darkness. Always the kingdom of God and the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. Our father, the father of light versus the father of lies in darkness. And we're talking about so many spiritual parallels and all these depths here. And as we close, I want to get into some practical applications for this, but I want to move on. So now we get the end of Jesus' discourse. And remember, they're walking by. They can see this man. So most likely he can hear them. As we get into verse 6, think about this blind man again. He's sitting here on the ground and he hears this. All day long he hears hustle and bustle and hears conversations. And he hears the disciples. And the disciples, teenagers, adolescents here, uh, they may not have the gentleness, the dignity to say it so this man can't hear. They may be speaking right in front of him. I, I don't know. But think of him. He doesn't know. What's going on? He then hears someone speak and he hears these amazing words. I am the light of the world. And then having said these things, Jesus spits on the ground. So the blind man hears all this and hears. Literally, I I love this. The Greek word here is pituo. Can't make this up. We would we would we would spell it P-T-U-O. Pituo to spit. The only time it's ever used in scripture is of Jesus to spit to heal someone. He spits. Uh, now, I was going to get into this and spend a lot of time on it, but I won't. There was a lot of thought in, among the ancients that saliva had healing powers. Uh, they would go on and on. There's, there's a historic writer called Pliny who goes on about all these different things that saliva was supposed to, to cure. And so there was, there was this, this thought back then that, that saliva had all these healing properties. And I love how Jesus takes these, these common perceptions and say, okay, you think saliva has power? Look what mine can do. And so he spits and he makes mud with the saliva. I wish I could take credit for this, but I, I can't. Some of the early church fathers talk about the same God who created everything out of the dust of the earth uses the dust of the earth and his own spit to recreate the eyes of this blind man. I love that. That's why you should read some good old dead theologians. Verse 7. Oh, excuse me. Continuing in verse 6. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus doesn't tell him what's going to happen. He doesn't even tell him why he's putting this mud on his face. He spits, he makes mud, puts it on his eyes, and he just says, go. That's faith. Because I don't know if it was me, I'd have a few questions. Like, first, why are you touching me? Why are you putting mud on my face? What's going to happen if I go over there? Why should I listen to you? Who are you? I might have a few more questions than that. But this blind man, for the first time, hears the voice of Jesus, just obeys. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Anyone remember Siloam? I talked about this when we were in the Feast of the Booths. If you remember it, but I'm going to ask you later. Um, so Siloam was this pool in the south of Jerusalem. So when they had this, this Feast of the Booths, they would every day make this procession where they dip a jar into the pool and they would carry it up to the temple. And this is the context where he said, if you come to me, there are rivers of living water. This pool Named Siloam was in the, the south of Jerusalem, and they parade all through the city. Siloam was named Sent. We also got into this a little bit, but it's called Sent because Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, fearing um, invasion, wanted to make sure that, that their water sources were, were protected. So he digs from a living source outside of the city, uh, 500 yards or so under the city, about 20 or 30 feet down, and digs this pool in in there. So this is not a natural pool in Jerusalem. It is sent from the outside in. 
And so I, I wish there was more parallels I could pull out here, but I, I got a feeling this is not intentional that John mentioned sent. Right after Jesus mentioned that he is sent from the Father. And right after he sends the man to this pool. This pool was also, if you remember, it was associated with the Holy Spirit. It was used to anoint kings. It was, it was uh, associated with blessing and salvation. Whenever there was a, a big process or, or a new coronation, it would be done at this pool. So the, the symbolism is a lot deeper than, than we can understand being outside of that culture. Remember uh, Siloam. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Let's think about the parallels here between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. What did Jesus have to do with this man's restoration of sight? Saw the man, found the man, knew the man, directed the man, sent the man and healed the man. What did the man, what, what was his role in this? trusted Jesus. How different is that from our own salvation? Saw us, knows us, directs us. Go and wash in my blood. You will be healed. We are just like that man. The only thing we can do is respond in faith and say, okay, I don't know how to heal myself. I can't restore Eyes, I can't see spiritual things. I can't enter myself into eternal life in my own effort. But when the Savior says, go and wash, I trust him. It is good. So God is good. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? So think about this. He's a beggar. What's the first thing he does? Does he go back and and beg? Does a person who's been healed go right back to what they were doing before they were healed? Of course not. He goes back to his old neighborhood. He tells his old friends. He finds his neighbors. His life has been restored. He's going to live for real. But let's get real for a moment. When Christ gives us new eyes to see, how often do we go back to begging? How often do we go back to the things that were marked by our darkness? Because that's where we're comfortable. It would be as stupid as a man who's been given sight for the first time, going back and sitting down and begging for spirit change again. Many Christians who go back into destructive, dark things that marked us before Christ. Shameful things. Disregarding the work that Christ has done in us. That's why Paul reminds us so often, you are, you have eyes to see. You are given new selves in Christ. You are not the old man, you are the new man. And so were some of you. You used to be the idolaters and the sexually immoral and the, and, and the, and the drunkards. You used to, you used to be fearful and used to be slaves to sin. Now you're children of God. And it breaks my heart every time I talk to a believer. Wants to go back to what's comfortable, what's dark, the lies that were told in darkness. And you know what that says? I don't trust you, Jesus. I don't believe that you've actually healed me. I don't believe that you're good enough for my sin. We must resist the urge to fall back in the habits of the old man. Use this blind man as an example. When he gets eyes, he is out of there. I am never begging another day in my life. I hope he didn't. He goes back and he tells his neighbors. Who, of course, there's, there's always confusion among the Jews. Like the Jews can't agree on anything. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some says it is he. Others said, no. He is like him, but he kept saying, I'm the man, kept saying this is an imperfect active in the Greek, which means it is a continued act action in the past. He kept saying it. 
Here he is standing in front of these people who are debating right in front of him. I'm him. I'm the man. And he doesn't say it like we say it today, but he's saying like, I am that man that, 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 that you knew. It's, it's me. And then I try to put myself in the, in the position of what's going on here. Imagine these people who live in Jerusalem, going back to his old neighborhood. Some knew him, some didn't. They would walk by him every day and see him begging out there. The same man, blind, sitting, begging. You know his face. No one mentions his name. He's probably not even worth mentioning. In this entire account, an entire chapter is devoted to him. We don't know his name. I'm assuming they didn't know his name either. They were used to talking about him like he wasn't even there. Now they're arguing about him like he wasn't, like he isn't even there. And he's saying, I'm the man. I'm that man. He keeps saying it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you. No matter how righteous you think you are, you were that blind man. Before you put faith in Christ, you were blind and begging and hopeless. Alone, going through your entire life in pure darkness. But Jesus applies the supernatural to the natural and says, do you trust me? Go wash in my blood and then you will see. And brothers and sisters in Christ, if he has opened your eyes, it should be as amazing as a man born blind who can now see. Let's never lose our awe and wonder. I was blind and now I see. I'm lost and now I'm found. Had no name and now I'm called a child of God. Too many of you, your God is too small. Your theology is, is, is too small. You assume your identity and your salvation is based on how good you feel today. And I know because I talk to a lot of you. It's not. If Jesus says you are free, you are free indeed. If Jesus opens your eyes, they are opened indeed. People should say that about us. Weren't you the one who? Don't I remember that you? That, do you remember this? It's a true story. Um, this happened to me a couple weeks ago. Ran into a friend of mine who knew me in the depths of my depravity. Um, he knew the drunkenness and the drugs and the womanizing and all that stuff. Uh, we did all of it together. It's a guy who's like 270 pounds of muscle. And he said, hey, what have you been up to? See, that question may not be the same for you guys. But when I get that question, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm a pastor. This dude almost fell out. And he's, he, you? You? Nah, it's got to be somebody else. Because, no, I, I know you. This, I got to see. He keeps telling me he's going to come. I, I hope he does. Um, but that look of amazement and astonishment. Like if Jesus can heal you, he can heal anybody. That should be the amazement every time someone sees what Christ has done in our lives. So they go on. Of course, the, the, the Jews are, are doubting. How is this possible? Verse 10. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and washed. So I went and I washed and received my sight. That's it. So his answer, how are you? How can you see now? Jesus. Our answer, how can you see now? Jesus. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. To be continued. This story gets gets good. We're going to spend a couple more weeks here. But I want to kind of set the the foundation. Just a a few closing thoughts. John's gospel is so important. Because it helps us understand spiritual realities. Physical blindness. And it's parallels to spiritual blindness. And the work of Christ. And the life of those he changes. We may never, probably, no, you, you, you probably will never make a blind man see again. Just they hate to, you know, set the bar too low. It's probably not going to happen. But every time we share the gospel with someone, we get to be a part of a blind man seeing for the first time. 
every time we apply the word of God to one another's lives, it helps many of us short or nearsighted Christians see more clearly. Because it's not always healing blind. Once we, healing the blind, once we begin to see, a lot of us have cataracts we need to have worked on. Uh, because we, we, we don't see things as we should. We don't see them with an eternal perspective. And that is why we apply scripture to one another's lives. It's the same Jesus who opened the eyes of that blind man. Still working in the lives of blind people. And the one question every one of us has to answer is, do you trust him? He seeks you. He finds you. He directs you and he heals you. Just trust him. Just believe in him. I just want to ask you, just think about this this week. Those who have eyes opened, what are the areas in your life where you are tempted to going back to begging? What are areas in your life where you forget what God has done and you keep going back to what you knew before because that's what you've always done? How does that differ from God's word? And remember, in Christ, you are the light of the world. Here to do the works of the Father. Because night is coming soon. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your work in us. Thank you that you are powerful and mighty to save. There is no salvation apart from you. Apart from you, we are blind in darkness. But you are the light of the world. Help us to trust in you every day. Help us to put our trust in you in all things. And through Christ Jesus, we are the light of the world. We should be confident in the works of the Father because we are his children. Thank you for your word that convicts us that teaches us, that molds us into your image so that you get all the glory and all the praise because you are worthy and you deserve it. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.